Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I might be a skin job. And I'm the machine. Way to gross everyone out at the very beginning of the podcast. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The year just so happens to be 1982. For this season, the machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Blade Runner. Five stars. I need your deck. This is a bad one. The worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants. Three male, three female. They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Tyrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Five stars McGee over here. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show since, you know, the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. This is the month of November, so we're going to be talking about the Japanese film Demons from 1971, because we're always in the previous season's run of films on our bonus episodes over there. So Demons is what we're going to be watching this Demons. month. Now, before we get to talking about this week's film, one of the core reasons people tune into our show each and every week is this deep and rich fiction. I'm here for the for the fiction. Deep and rich fiction. Yeah, yeah. acting. And um I just think I'm I'm so sure that somebody is out there just watching us in the forest. It's like they're hunting us or something like that. It feels like we're just being watched all the time. Have you felt that this week, Dave? No, not at all. I just kind of walk around our little cabin and mm -hmm. uh, keep to myself mostly. I find looking out into the real world, Kyle, is frightening. And uh, I don't want anything to do with it. Man, we should just really just have like fluorescent lights just buzzing like purples and blues all the time you gotta flick it's a it great great way to live you gotta flick it to keep it on you have to keep flicking me to keep me turned on as is the case here for the last few weeks we have another big film that we need to cover here this week mm -hmm. 1982 is this huge year for genre filmmaking they like to see there's big names in horror science fiction fantasy blade runner has it almost feels stupid just to state this out loud but has been kind of a big deal in our culture for the past 40 years since it's not been just released. our culture yeah yeah i think culture in general yeah it is definitely culture forming i mean if you do know anything about the movie you'll know that it's not exactly like it set the world on fire on initial release no but it slowly grew in estimation over the years that being said there's a few people we should probably cover so dave what is your history with director ridley scott do i love ridley scott i love so many ridley scott movies i should sir Really, whatever. I don't know how is pretentious he? he is. Yeah, I think he's knighted. Uh, I actually liked kind of his uh, tragically early death Younger Brothers movies. You know, True mm -hmm. Romance and Top Gun were good. But uh, Tony, good old Tony. What's the first really Scott movie that's the best? Probably Alien. And then... Uh, yeah, which is his second film that he ever makes. This is yeah. his third film he ever makes. Have you seen The Duelists? No, I want to. But there's not anywhere. It's so hard to find. You might have access to it. No, no, we're not going to state that out loud. I don't know if that's supposed to be a great movie, but apparently sort of like it's it. supposed to be quite fun. interesting. Yeah. Also, like, Harvey Keitel can act. Whatever. Great. Well, Harvey Keitel can act. <laughs> 
he just never sounds like he's of the time that he's supposed to be in. He's always from the Bronx. Like you can always tell it. That's Harvey Keitel. The big ones, I mean, through our lives, you know, you have Black Hawk Down, you have Gladiator. Black Rain is actually quite good. Thelma and Louise. Mm. Uh, Gladiator. That's a big one. Black yeah. Hawk Down. I didn't really like Kingdom of Heaven. Like I think in the mid 2000s, even American Gangster, I thought was a little overrated. Robin Hood was shit. Body of Lies was okay. I actually am a defender of Prometheus. I actually kind of like that movie. <laughs> A lot of alien... There's going to be a return to talking about Prometheus here near the end of the episode. That's a little foreshadowing. All right. Uh, Martian. Uh, he, right? That he, year is crazy. The Martian. Yeah. I like The Martian. I know people now, it's cool to hate that movie, but I enjoy That's The Martian. That's not their fault. It's because of the Golden Globes. Sure. Who cares? Um, I haven't the, seen... The, last year, he... he released two films partly because the pandemic pushed things yes. back i will full-throatedly defend gross that was not the right way to describe it full-throatedly okay no well, keep, I, I just say tell that us what you, you do with your throat. You're, you're not online dave because you don't know the discourse that popped up around that movie about how people got up and said no one should see this movie because it condones rape which is the last duel oh, the, the last, last duel, duel i think is a great great movie it's basically I, it's on my watch list, it's basically yeah. rashomon but with knights. Yeah, like, yeah. That's basically what that movie is. And I think there's a phenomenal job of laying that out of like, quote unquote, who's telling the truth yeah. in a very fascinating way. However, I think people came into it thinking it was going to be a night movie where people were going to fight all the time. And it's that this is not what the, that movie is. Yeah, it's on my watch list on Disney Plus after they acquired Fox. But mm -hmm. uh, that is also another movie that no one in my house will watch with me. No. And it's really Scott. So it's probably three hours long. Uh, it's a long movie. Same with <laughs> same with House of Gucci, which I'm pretty sure you will hate. Helen loved it. I didn't watch it with you. I did too. I enjoyed House of Gucci. It's dumb. It is so over the top dumb. I saw I enjoyed the, it a lot. I saw the assassination of Adam Driver as I was walking mm -hmm. through the living room. It was a little, not pastiche, but you know, slow motion. I mean, it's still mm -hmm. been done before, but Helen really liked that movie. Besides you, your wife has great taste. I am looking forward to... Uh, his Napoleon movie mm. with Joaquin Phoenix. That's what he's making now. What is your feelings of Gladiator? Because I think that has some pushback nowadays too. I don't know. I haven't watched it recently. I remember when it came out, uh, I was a big fan. Um, but I was, what's Gladiator? 2000? So yeah, I'm still in my early yeah. 20s. I really liked it. Peak Russell Crowe. Mm -hmm. uh, peak sort of resurgent to, resurgence of epics. And I think I watched Spartacus after because it's so... Interesting. Connected yeah, to yeah. Spartacus. And I think I actually liked Gladiator better at the time. I haven't watched either movie since then, so I can't give you a... I actually watched Spartacus very recently, and I thought it was just okay. Yeah, overrated I think it a bit, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, there's some of it that I, that I enjoy. Kubrick knows how to shoot a scene, yeah. like that, so like obviously. Does, but does it drag? I, f I remember it dragging yeah, quite a bit. Little, I mean, it's nearly four hours long. Yeah. It's a long movie. Something I learned, unless I totally misunderstood this documentary I watched about the making of Spartacus. I say documentary, I mean YouTube clip of a documentary. <laughs> Apparently, the original, the track where they recorded the actors acting i don't know what you call that the real i don't, I don't know the real i guess whatever for some reason there's this big long production history but at some point that got destroyed or lost oh, or wow. whatever so all of the dialogue it was actually re-recorded after the fact oh. but Lawrence olivier had died so oh. any prints you see if you're watching the 4k or greater releases impersonator yes but you know who it is no i've never heard the story before anthony hopkins oh, apparently anthony hopkins has a pitch perfect Lawrence olivier impression of course he so does if you, wa so course if you does. watch spartacus you're actually hearing anthony hopkins do Lawrence olivier instead of actually Lawrence olivier's voice I, like i'm not asking for this because i love anthony hopkins and i think it's going to happen soon but when he passes away finally because he's still banging out 
Oscar yes, contending he stuff, does right? So many movies each year. And people do a retrospective of his life. That guy is going to go down as one of the greatest actors who ever lived. I mean, he's already considered that, but I think people should look at his entire career. You know, we talked about Keith David here in the thing here a few weeks ago. Keith David has a very interesting outlook as an actor. Kind of totally butcher his quote. But he's like, I've been a working actor. I just say yes to everything because here's the thing. I'm so confident in my abilities. I know that I'm in mostly shit, but every so often I'm going to be in a great movie. And people are just going to remember the good stuff. They're not going to remember all the shitty stuff that I did. And I feel that Andy Hopkins is like the prestige version of that. He just says yes to everything. And we just remember like it's Hannibal. It's the father. It's like this movie. I don't know. All right. We'll look later. His filmography is going to be too long. I I mean, you just remember all the great stuff that he did. I feel like he's good in everything, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's good good in everything. That's what I mean. That's why he'll transcend shit material material which you can't say for a lot we'll talk about the star of this film perhaps and how it's a good segue yeah. let's talk about harrison ford which i think weirdly this is our first harrison ford movie Doesn't we're talking sense, about but yeah actually no because he got big in the 80s and we just haven't been there yet well 70s no yeah. late 70s we're gonna talk about star I'm, wars i'm saying late 70s but he started making movies in the late 60s so it yeah, wasn't yeah. like he was no, been he, around for a while right but he wasn't a star no until, until star wars. Wars. yeah uh yeah i grew up with Han Solo. I think his peak was around my major theater watching this as a youth. So he was still a huge star in the nineties. Early nineties. Yeah, yeah, man. Clear and present danger, fugitive, all that stuff was like culture uh, forming. Air Force for me. One, Dave. Get off my plane. <laughs> um <laughs> and then he had that big dip. I think me in particular, but I think culture in general was not ready for someone who had been quote unquote a Hollywood star married to a regular person for so many years and then mm. he has the affair with Anne Hayes or Calista Flockhart whoever it was Calista Flockhart yeah and then uh and then his career just nosedived for like yeah, 10 years no it's wild I would have to actually look at that here's my theory have, have you seen the movie what lies beneath with Michelle Pfeiffer in him no it's directed by Robert Zemeckis filmed Literally, when they took a break from Castaway because Tom Hanks had to lose a bunch of weight, so he made another film in, in the downtime and then came back wow. and finished Castaway, which is why those two movies come out in the same year, I think, or close to very close together. Anyways, it is literally just your typical thriller of a, of a film starring Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. I'm actually a fan of it. It's pretty solid, not great, but it's a pretty solid film. And I feel like that was the last gasp of like it made money. It was fairly well reviewed, and then his career kind of just nosedives because it's oh, like K-19, the Widowmaker after <laughs> that, and like all that kind of shitty stuff that he would do. And then basically his career has now been in the last five to six years, like, let's kill off all of my characters I made famous in the 70s and 80s. Well, I feel <laughs> like, that's, that's his thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like my impression of him is that he always wanted that to happen, even at the peak of their popularity. Yeah. You know, he's pretty, he's a pretty straightforward guy in that way. I, I don't think he ever thought, oh, I, I got to make sure Han Solo is a property for the rest of my life. I'm pretty sure probably in the first movie, he's like, why didn't I die? <laughs> well, I mean, he's also famous for saying straight up to George Lucas's face, like, George, you can write this shit, but no one can speak it, <laughs> which I think is so funny. Yeah, he's a pretty interesting guy. Um, you know, I always loved the most famous thing about him. It's kind of like Robert Redford being a horse ranch guy like Harrison Ford's the carpenter right like he mm-hmm, has mm-hmm. this uh, fascinating side personality that's how he got into Hollywood you know he was uh, having trouble as an actor decided to take up carpentry as a side job to feed his family at the time mm-hmm. and he started building custom cabinets for like Hollywood moguls and then got back that's into so Hollywood. it's funny. fascinating right I love him I think he's a weird guy like he is a movie star we've talked about this yes. before too like I wouldn't say he's like hugely has a huge range no he's an not actor. an anthony hopkins but no uh, but it's like 
I go to see a Harrison Ford yeah. movie because I want to see Harrison Ford. You, you want to see a charismatic, charismatic asshole. Like he's mm-hmm. so good at being a dick and you just want to root for him no matter what kind of stupid shit he says or how we'll see he grabs and manipulates and seduces women. He's Harrison Ford. He's, you want to watch a Harrison Ford movie? <laughs> You're going to see Harrison Ford in it. <laughs> and that is the most intellectual thing you'll hear. On this podcast. On this episode, <laughs> I uh, is responsible for one of my favorite movie quotes of all time. Not that he made it up, but this is the uh, I love you, I know line from Empire Strikes Back. The best of the series. It is. It is. Yeah, I would. Hands down. Um, the human perception of love will be the downfall of the entire species. How about your history with this movie, Dave? Well, obviously, I've alluded to it. I love this film. But I guess the caveat, the asterisk, is that I've watched probably three three versions right mm-hmm. i mean that's just how blade runner fandom goes yeah just do, let's just spoil this just for a second this movie is made and compiled in 1982 they do what is called a work print edit to show it to executives before it kind of gets like finalized and sent out into theaters the network executives say like well, we're not so keen on like this kind of depressing ending and i think we we think you should add in some voiceover just so that it's very obvious it yeah. explains some of the stuff that's going on yeah because really scott was still starting out uh, even though he'd made alien you would think he'd have more cachet but regardless he's just starting out so he gets overruled and has to change the ending has to put in these voiceovers. So that is what the theatrical cut is that gets released in 1982 and what critics would have reviewed. Which we discover watching it this year because I had forgotten about it. <laughs> Correct. So then this is this makes really start really mad. But in the early 90s, he releases his director's cut, which takes uh, out the voiceover, yeah. takes and changes the ending again. And he didn't release that one. It was an unauthorized one because it was a work print sur- resurfaced and a studio audience right. saw it. And so the saw production it, company then, is yeah. like, Columbia's like, oh, we're losing money. Let's put this out. Regardless, there's a director's cut that gets released in the 90s. And then finally, the what they call now the final cut gets released in the early 2000s. And that's the one that really Scott is like stamp of approval. This is the one that I think should, people should see. I wish I had made from the beginning. Yep. So if you buy the package on Apple or on YouTube or the uh, big DVD yeah. or the Blu-ray package, you get all four versions yeah. that you can watch. And I thought for years that I had seen the theatrical cut at some point <laughs> and I was wrong. Yeah. We're about to find <laughs> I have out. not seen that before. <laughs> uh, so, so to continue on, you have seen versions of, of, yes. of Blade you know, with before. the unicorn, without the unicorn. I I love this movie. I think I have a special affection for it, uh, not only because of vibes, but because it influences every science fiction, anime, yes. cyberpunk. It creates cyberpunk. So Basically creates cyberpunk, yes. Everything that I love moving forward, including, you know, manga and cartoons mm-hmm. and all this stuff gets its... It's rooted in Blade Runner. So if I go yeah. back and watch Blade Runner, I'm like, this is not just the source material, but because often when we watch a movie that inspires other movies, you can see rough mm-hmm. edges, but this thing's fucking beautiful, Kyle. It still looks beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the way, just not to blow past it too much. I'm trying to be better at this. Can you explain what cyberpunk is just in case someone doesn't uh, know what cyberpunk is? Um, I guess cyberpunk like steampunk, I think there's two different things, are subgenres of science fiction. Cyberpunk typically is a post-apocalyptic world where we get anachronisms between, you know, super forward technologies and then a gritty noir uh, storyline. So there's typically either detective or like very grungy lower class people. And so the stories become very uh, 
like thriller, you know, that sort of energy to it. And steampunk is when we take that anachronism even farther. And so we have a spaceship that runs on like diesel fuel <laughs> or like a steam mm -hmm. engine, but they occupy a similar narrative space, which is, uh, yeah, adventure stories, horror, science fiction are often homages like this film is to uh, film noir in the 50s. And it's a thousand percent my jam. <laughs> I love the melding of those two things together. <laughs> well, that's where my brain lives. I love it. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing about this that paints uh, cyberpunk, it's always dark, wet, mm -hmm. dark, and depressing. All vibes, right? So I somehow survived until my early 20s before I ever saw Blade Runner for the first time. And this is going to make me sound so much more important than I actually am. But I was working on this short film and crossed paths with this very like advanced and great special effects creator, like would do his own molds and masking. And, and we got talking about film. And he's like, you haven't seen Blade Runner? You got to see Blade Runner. Blade Runner is my favorite film and you have to see Blade Runner. So he actually lent me his copy of Blade Runner. like His VHS copy? Uh, and it would have been DVD, I think, at that point. But uh, he gave it to me to go and watch and so watched it really liked it and have watched it a few times throughout the years since then i'm pretty confident i probably rewatched it too right before the sequel came out whenever that was 2017 2016 whenever blade runner 2049 yeah. came out i have loved blade runner as soon as i watched i'm like oh this is where this is referenced like i can i start yes. things are like connecting in my brain i was like oh i see how this has been influential and all this other stuff really enough i saw blade runner and ghost in the shell very close together i'm like oh okay this is this blade runner that you're doing well, again i grew up i discovered ghost in the shell the manga in the mid 90s that is the single book more than akira that has completely changed how i think about film mm. and storytelling that comic book Kyle, is fucking incredible it is just some of the best yeah. it's just the best and uh yeah and then when i watched blade run around that time it's like oh yeah <laughs> this world actually exists right. it's not a drawing mm -hmm. right so cool i say all this to say to try and get out ahead of the, of so the people <laughs> that are gonna hate me so much at the end of this episode we are talking Why? about the theatrical version of this movie <laughs> <laughs> not the director's or final cut of this nobody's movie nobody's gonna i know nobody's gonna mistake that right, well, no we're gonna talk about the narration a lot and people are like there's no narration in this film i'm like i know there, there shouldn't be, be. But but there was when it originally came out. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, let's do this, Dave. We should go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about a little film called Blade Runner. A little old uh, indie. Sorry, Dave. I just need to flash this light in your eyes a few times. Just need to make sure. All right. Yeah, you're all good to go. Oh, I have empathy. <laughs> I know, weirdly enough, I didn't think it was possible, but you are showing signs of empathy. I never looked this up, but is Voigtkampf an acronym? They allude to it in I the film. I don't know. But it's a completely made up thing, but I don't know. I know, I know. Since I'm not a skin job, I'm going to keep saying that because it's such a gross, <laughs> it's a gross term. Yeah. I should tell you then that Kyle and Dave versus the machine is not just host to some skin jobs. It's a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, I get to tell you about a place that I know intimately well. And it's great because in Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has a low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates, but as someone who's six foot four, I have to stoop a bit. Reach out for a no obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. 
If you decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just a change to your billing and you can feel good knowing that you are helping to give back to our communities with your utilities bills. And by the way, they are uh, accessible by phone. I called them up a couple times and they were very nice and helped me through the entire process. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Pregnant pause. pause. It was a pregnant pause. Also, speaking of, yeah, I'm starting to watch uh, 2049 and that is uh, a very important part of that plot. Also, I just want to say, apparently, Kyle, advertising does work. Oh, because I switched all, over? That's right. You read the ad enough times, you're like, I, I guess I have to. I guess now I have to go get some employees so I can offer them Alberta <laughs> Blue Cross? I, I don't know. <laughs> speaking of Alberta Blue Cross... If you're a busy, uh, even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected. When your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross, your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime, on any device. What about like a electronic air fryer? <laughs> I would love it. They have smart air I mean, fryers. Can you get though? a smart air fryer so it just makes me some home fries every morning? Actually, I think so. <laughs> We're getting to that fifth element of Blade Runner mm -hmm. world. We're getting close to there. Making it easier for them and for you to learn more and explore your options. Head to ab.bluecross.ca. All right, Dave, we have now sat down and watched this. And again, we have watched the theatrical, the theatrical cut, cut the theatrical of cut. Blade Runner. I think you should put in some narration <laughs> while you're reading that. <laughs> Kyle thought about. Kyle was thinking desperately about a way to positively spin the idea of putting in voiceover into the podcast. The fact that they do drop the N-word in that narration, I was like, whoa, I was not I expecting know. that at Pretty all. Pretty heavy. I like the way they did it, though. You're like, okay, yeah, skin job's a bad word. Yeah, no, all right. but we get yeah. that through context. I mean, it's <laughs> no, you're saying skin uh, job. I'm a producer, Kyle. Nobody will get it. All right, you have to fucking tell them exactly what to say. I want to be in the room once when someone says it's like, but will people understand that skin job means something bad? And just like me going like, what the fuck are you talking about? What? Skin job. Can you imagine how Ridley Scott would have felt sitting in that meeting? Just like you fucking, if I had made six more movies, I would be fucking telling talking you. Talking about like cantankerous old men, because he's almost 80 now, I think, but like, we yeah. talked about John Carpenter a few weeks ago and how he does not give a shit. He will call out other filmmakers. Really, this guy's kind of the same way. It's like, piece of shit, didn't like this guy. He's an asshole. <laughs> He'll just say it. Well, him and Harrison don't get along, but that's... I think they I we'll smooth things over, but they did not have a good time making this movie. No. However, Dave, no. before we get into you talking about your thoughts on this film, yes. let's yes. make a scenario here. Mm -hmm. Let's say that you and I have decided that we are going to go to the local uh, skin job dealer. And oh, as we're walking down the street to said services a could use a skin job a, a an android user there's someone who's using an android phone uh runs up to us and it's like i just printed blade runner on blu-ray what's it about how would you answer that person why is he holding a phone because why a, wouldn't you got it on android, google play because you just rented it you see on yeah on youtube google owns android uh, <laughs> i would first i would be like oh you're an idiot you bought the theatrical cut so you fucked up already mm-hmm mm -hmm. <laughs> In, in West Philadelphia. In the future, a company creates androids that are so lifelike mm -hmm. that we can't tell them apart. And a group of six of them return to Earth on a murdering spree, really. And a bounty hunter called a Blade Runner has to find them out and kill them all. 
nice and succinct. Um, and what were your thoughts on rewatching Blade Runner? Yeah, so we have a heavy bias, not only because narration is generally not great unless you're making a movie in the 1930s, but I also like have spent so many years reading, like, so, you know, how I was giving you and Sarah a hard time mm -hmm. about overanalyzing films, but I've lived in this movie for the last 20 some odd years, 30 years. So I overanalyzed this film. I felt like the narration definitely is super awkward <laughs> and shocking. Uh, but you know, the bones of this film are still exactly the same. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't detract from the plot. And so I like the theatrical cut. Like I don't love it. It's very hard to kind of get through uh, as a fan, but it, it still works. It, it made me think of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, <laughs> frankly. So I, I do understand how like a 70 year old studio exec would look at this and be like, well, it's, if it's film noir, we got to have someone tell us what's going on in this guy's brain, right? Mm -hmm. And really Scott's like, uh, you're supposed to intuit that because you have a brain, you fucking idiot. But he wasn't allowed to because it's only second film. Otherwise, performances are still great. I love the acting this and the world building. Like, So I bought it and I don't remember if the Blu-ray is the same way because I don't remember ever seeing this theatrical cut. But on Apple TV, it is so washed out and desaturated. So mm. I don't know if that was intentional in post-production, but that part's kind of off-putting. But uh, this movie's famous. It's always raining. Everything's dirty. It's slick. It's so highly developed. Um, the number of designers they've brought on to make this a living, breathing world about a post-apocalyptic vision of LA. The shit still looks really good. Mm -hmm. Even like the idea of having a CRT TV mm -hmm. that he's doing his investigation on. That's that cyberpunk thing. It's like, I believe it. I'm into yeah, it. Why wouldn't you have a pay phone that's actually a video phone? Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Because like this shit, it informs reality, right? It's not that different from an iPhone, no, right? No. It really isn't. It's fascinating. That's the thing. It's like so. they might not get like the ultra specifics right, but the like the general idea is something that we are doing with now. Even though I will say, kind of off the mark of what 2019 was totally going to feel like, <laughs> but um, not well. They may have been off by maybe like 20 the last years? Star Wars movie came out then, so they didn't even <laughs> predict that. I'm still a sucker for this. And normally I am too. I, I wrote this recently, I think on my letterbox. I do think Blade Runner in many ways is a hard movie to love because it is so dedicated to the tone it's setting, to the feel of this world. It doesn't really explain a whole lot of stuff. Even this theatrical version that does have the narration that does overexplain certain sequences, it does not go into like a huge detail about like what this corporation is like really doing or like who these people are what this character's motivation is so you kind of have to just be like okay i'm just like giving myself over to the tone to the feel of this movie to the vibes that this movie is giving to me on top of that i spent some time and actually read a lot of the negative reviews that came out at the time and even those i have to be i have to be honest is like i actually kind of agree with you to a certain degree in that like i wouldn't necessarily call them plot holes but they might be things that have just not been thought out a hundred percent which is the whole setup is that these are ultra realistic looking androids that now people can't tell the difference between whether or not they're really human or human why are they human looking like what is the purpose of them looking human in the first place if deckard knows that that guy i forget what the corporation is called but tyrell tyrell yeah they, he knows like we know from the very beginning that that's who they're going to target is like why don't you just station yourself there and wait for them to come you know that that's where they're going to go to in the first place but we take this huge diversion of him like going around and like picking up other clues and stuff like that so anyways there's these little nitpicks and like i kind of actually agree with them 
And at the same time, I don't really care because it is acted so well. I do believe what they're doing. And there's all this other like philosophical stuff I do want to kind of touch on here as we go on. I think I've made it sound like I hated the theatrical version. I'm going to say I hated it, but it's, it's very similar as a musical theater fan. Long running shows will have like their original Broadway cast. Uh, Phantom is like this. You know, you have your original Broadway cast, your original London cast, your revival cast, your Australia cast, like the 25th anniversary cast. So you get like multiple versions of the same show, but it is slightly different based on vocal performance, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe it's whatever one you listen to first is usually what your favorite one is. And it usually mm-hmm. is true. It's just like, this is what I grew up with. What I listen to the most is what I think the of when I factor. think of this show. And I think Blade Runner is a similar thing to me because I'm so used to another version. This just feels off to me. It just feels like, no, no, that's, that's, that's not how it's supposed to happen. This is not how this is supposed to go. Even though it's like 98% of the same movie, it's like, oh, I don't like that vocal performance or oh, I don't like that slight edit here and i just ultimately think this movie does not work with a happy ending i think it just feels so well, that's the thing tacked on yes that even in 1982 if i went I'm like this feels wrong for this to have such a happy ending that's the thing like so the difference i think where i think your comparison to musical theater kind of breaks apart i i think you're right the power of personal experience nostalgia that is so impactful in how we re-experience life but watching this theatrical version, <laughs> is it, it's any wonder that the cult following wanted the work print mm-hmm. and kept begging Ridley Scott to show us his vision. Now, whether the story of how much influence the studio heads had on it is actually true or not, right. or if that's part of the narrative to reshoot it, we'll never know. I mean, directors are generally pretty egotistical about their work and many of them given the chance won't just leave it alone uh, with the exception maybe of steven spielberg as we've learned a little bit it's it's not the narration that makes it bad it, it's not right it's the ending yeah, yeah and the I think, ending is yes i think that's what breaks this film uh, this version of the film and why it requires the re-edit like whether you like the narration or not whether you need it to be so i don't know is it pedantic whatever the word is to just shove your face into that it's a film noir that you know he's not sure who he is and blah blah blah, blah. kind of spelling out some of the ph- uh, philosophical and ethical problems um with this world of human and not human it's dark it's wet it's cruel i like how right? you keep going it's back disgusting. to the wet comments yeah well that's that was one of the biggest things is that it's one of the first science fiction, I think, that's shot entirely in the rain. I'm wet right now. I think they intentionally... That's why Harrison Ford hated yeah, it. Yeah, he hated like, filming this because of how yeah. rainy. And the night shoots that went on for like 40 nights or something like that. That's yeah. right. It was like required to shoot for the mood. I mean, this movie's pure vibes, right? Mm-hmm. And then to suddenly have them like flying over a fucking green valley and be like, we love each other. It's so stupid. Mm-hmm. So stupid. I also think that the narration is actively bad, but that's... <laughs> I really sure, do. Sure. Because I, I think you can even tell, and again, this is another Harrison Ford thing, he didn't want to do the narration either. <laughs> and he thinks it's stupid. Although that is kind of how he talks right it is but it's just like <laughs> i don't know and there must have been another direction or so something kind of coming here and uh, but it feels so anachronistic too it's like he sounds almost a little yeah. bit happy in those narration bits i don't know it just feels off and weird there's one aspect of this film that i feel is like over discussed to death if you listen to other podcasts or go oh, online the replicant theory but i feel yeah. like we just need to say it and, and state our opinions and then we can move on to other stuff which is do you think in this film not talking about the sequel which they definitively answer this question <laughs> but do you think that deckard is a replicant in this movie uh, no but i can understand why nerds want it 
to happen. Mm -hmm. And number one, I think, kind of like Fight Club, if you miss the point that this film is about the ethics of killing anybody, you know, whether you think they're a good or a bad person, there's just that one scene where he turns around and his eyes glow. I don't know if it's a mistake in the cut, but he has that mm -hmm. stupid reflection in his pupils. That's just like worrying about something that's not that important to the film. Well, that's what I think. It's like people overanalyze this and I ultimately think it doesn't really matter either way, matter. really. No. And the book, uh, I, I mean, I don't the remember book, the book he that is well. I, yeah, I read it many, many years. I read after watching this mm -hmm. film. Which um, is very different, I, I've learned here this week. Yes. It's like super different. Yes. Yeah. And so the premise of that book is really this man is like, has to finally question whether he ought to be killing replicants right. or not. And whether it's actually human beings who are more cruel. And uh, spoiler alert, as we see in 2022, we fucking are, mm -hmm. Kyle. I've been having a lot of talks with my son about the news and how I think he needs to realize people are not nice by nature. <laughs> We're not. Sure. We're not. It's trained. But it's controlled. So I mean, I'm not a father and I'm not going to ever tell anyone how to raise their kids. I feel. <laughs> this is me being so Pollyanna about everything. I don't know if I can fully agree that all like humanity is like by their nature is evil or is awful people. No, but neutral. I think that the way I have to combat that is that I try and lead with openness and kindness as much as I possibly can, even though I understand sure. that if a lot of people out there are not that way. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are people we've met where kids show a sadistic mm -hmm. side, maybe by nature. But I think a lot of ethics is coded, you know? So even though we rail against organized religion and government, et cetera, and, you know, we have every right to, there's a lot of gross people that have taken over those institutions. There's a reason why governments and religions uh, were birthed in pre-millennia, mm -hmm. because people were just fucking murdering each other whenever they were getting into large complex societies. I think I'm right. I don't know if I'm not a, obviously a, a full historian, a social historian, but the birth of organized religion and government come after the organization of humans in complex townships and societies. So we need to be told that just because you and I, Kyle, are not blood related, I'm not supposed to kill you, right? And that's not actually as straightforward as we want to believe. We always have that, that question, you know, like, oh, what happened? What would happen? Uh, what would you do if it was your dad or son or sister that was brutally something? And then your visceral intuition is, oh, I would do something outside of what I think is right and wrong. Sure. Right? I think that's the tension. That, that's another reason why I love this movie, because you can talk about it at this level and transcend the fact that it's so beautiful and acted. And it's actually asking you to think about, or could mm -hmm. ask you to think about weird stuff like this. This is going to make me so inconsistent. In the Thing episode, I'm like, well, I think that Keith David is a thing because his breath doesn't show up in, in the shot. Right, right, right. And then this film is like, yeah, 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 you see his eyes glow, but I'm pretty sure he's a replicant. I, I don't know why. It's like, I just feel that that's what he is in this film. He's supposed to be a robot himself. He doesn't realize his programming is set out to kill his own people. Other rep. Yeah. No, I always see that. Yeah, in the, in the sequel. Do you mm. think, I couldn't find this, but how do you think they did the pupils? Mm. As someone who's, you know, works in photography, I can't figure out how you would light that without giving an actor a seizure. Right, yeah, yeah. Or overexposing, overexposing their face. Yeah, I don't know. For the pupil to be perfectly round. I wonder if it's like a specific light or, I don't know, yeah, filter or something you can put on. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Where they hand drew, drew it in, I guess they could have done that too. Yeah, or, or they're lighting their face with like a bulb mm. so that the catch is showing a circle. But some of them, like it's the full pupil. Mm -hmm. It's just it's beautiful. Such a beautiful movie. So intentional, right? right? Like every detail is designed. I mm. think that's the other thing about this, why it holds up so well. I think the the other thing that makes this 
a a hard movie to love, but so rich as far as like dissecting it and talking about it is I never really know how I should feel about anyone. Like, is Deckard Mm -hmm. a good person? I don't think so. Like, honestly, I don't know if like I'm wanting him to succeed in what he's setting out to do. And yet at the same time with Rutger Hauer and like the the rest of that group, he's so great. But like their ultimate goal is also something that I don't want them to do either. Like I totally agree that you should not be going out and shooting these robots indiscriminately just because they're very human-like. And yet I don't want his gang to come here and start murdering a lot of people either. So it's like two bad choices. And who do I want to actually succeed? I don't know if it's rare. You'd probably have a better catalog, but I feel like usually when you have an anti-hero, they're still pitted against a villain. And mm-hmm. this is a great movie because it's two anti-heroes. Yeah, like Rutger Hauer's team, like the uh, the replicants do end up murdering people, but they're not doing it by their intent. Mm. They're doing it with this existential fear, uh, with the exception, of course, when he kills his own god. And we could talk, if you want, about sure. uh, some of that, you know, philosophical overtone. But I, th- I think that's what it is, too. Like, a, a more modern reading, like the socialist reading or the communist reading of this is like, well, why do I care about this guy? Who's just trying to support a uh, corporation to have more power over over the populace, which I think is also kind of a fair comment to make. Yeah, well, that's and that's the thing with Harrison Ford. It's uh, like uh, both sides. There, you see it. I, you know, when he mentioned at the beginning how you don't get a lot of information about the characters. What's amazing about this film is you watch all of them evolve. Mm-hmm. So even though we don't really understand. You know, what it was like to live on a colony on Mars or whatever fucking planet the replicants are supposed to be settling. You watch them go from, they're all degrading in their social consciousness. By the end, Rutger Hauer and Daryl Hannah have turned into these like Mm -hmm. more robotic, but children. They're petrified and they're panicky and they're making these really strange illogical decisions by the end. Almost human solid solid writing mm-hmm. right decker too like he's reluctant he doesn't want to do the job he gets invested solely out of self-preservation and by the end you know he's just running for his life mm-hmm. he he can't win and it's only yeah the irony of this robot who is uh, sitting at his deathbed accessing this humanity well his famous line apparently rucker howard rewrote that yeah, line he made up uh, that tears, tears in, in the, the rain, rain right speech fuck man chills mm-hmm. Still, to this day, it's like, God. Chills. You're like, oof. I wish you could have seen the world, what I saw uh, through your eyes or whatever it was. Fucking genius. It's, it's. I don't know. Like, this this is what gets me so introspective because it's such a, it's something I actually probably over obsess about, like my meaning in life and like what mark on, on the world I've left. Uh, none at this point, but... um it's not true. Well, that's not I'm, true. Just, we're, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Doing this. <laughs> yeah, this podcast is going to be my meal ticket. Not if I have any say in it. Basically, his his whole thing or part of that speech is like, I wish you could have seen the things through my eyes because no one's going to see those things again. Or like, my life has meaning because of these experiences that I've had, and or you will never have, have those yeah. same experiences that I had. And I start to break your brain. It's like you're right. Like no one has the same exact experiences as everyone else, and everyone's life should feel meaningful at the end of their life. And sometimes they don't. I read this online. It's thirty seconds, twenty five seconds. That whole speech takes, and it's like so emotionally devastating. I suspect. I mean, I, I don't know which negative reviews you read, but I think it would be an interesting thing to collect data on, like how old what generation and what stage of their life they're in when they, you know, so like if I'm in my 40s or 50s watching this for the first time, all these like existential quandaries are not always going to hit home, especially if I've committed to a specific 
self-ideation. Like if I'm a film critic and I've been successful, like I'm A.O. Scott, wherever these fucking people mm-hmm. are. I've written oh. for 20s. Peter, what's his name? Peter, the guy Peter I wrote Travers. for No, sorry, 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 sorry. He, that was Rolling Stone. Yeah. You know, these are career guys. They uh, presumably enjoy their work and feel fulfilled by it. Again, presumably. Someone like that watching a movie like this may not actually connect perhaps with this deep longing for uh, some purpose, right? Uh, whereas definitely nomadic <laughs> spirits, people who are just yet to figure out where they're really supposed to fit in and have to deal with how they uh, interact with people around well, them. Yeah. I watched this for the 18th time, twice in one week to watch the theatrical and the final cut. Mm-hmm. And that's like those lines still give me the chills every time because I've got the same problem. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah, I think the... the- <laughs> That is, let's delve into that, Dave. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> no, uh, I think the thing that I took away this time, I don't know if I've ever fully internalized. Yes, these are androids slash robots that are made to look like adult people, but they are still children intellectually, like yes. really, like they've been given life, but we are still talking about toddlers who are now grappling with these big existential questions and they're trying to figure that out. And I think, yes, they've gone off on the wrong path and partly that's because people are trying to kill them, but these are still children that we're actually talking about that tackles this concept yeah not only of self-awareness which is a such a big ai robotics quandary but the fear of death right this existential problem and as i get older i've been getting hit a lot you know we're seeing a lot of celebrity deaths in the newsletter not just in movies but politics because Mm -hmm. you and i are getting to the age where the people we grew up sort of revering or new are actually all in their 70s or 80s or 90s. These are not like tragic deaths. They're just deaths now, right? But it puts into perspective. So for example, somebody passed away and I realized like that person is the same age as my grandma. My parents are in their 70s. I'm in my mid 40s, right? Like there was an era maybe 500 years ago where I would be considered like a senior, senior citizen. I still consider it that way. Just You have to think about it sometimes where, or on the inverse, you know, you read a story about a four-year-old girl that uh, is going to die from right. leukemia yeah. or some fucking crazy disease, but they're fully sentient of who they are and where they fit in the world. You know, it's so hard to wrap your mind around what that person experiences uh, knowing that they've got maybe even minutes uh, hours before everything just shuts off. Do you Dylan Thomas it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you rage against the dying light or do you accept and be a Zen Buddhist and be like, this is the way, right? I don't know. I think that's the hearty depth underneath whoever the writers are for this. Um, they dug pretty deep for this. The question, is it all worth anything anyways? <laughs> Well, I think that's also ultimately the tragedy of this and why I really, really don't think that the happy ending works. I think that's what Deckard eventually gets to. He's like, this is all pointless anyways. Whether I kill them, someone else is going to kill them anyways. (laughs) My free will is nothing. And now I'm going to be chased after for the rest of my life here too. I keep telling the both of you that everything you do is pointless. That's the poignant line with Edward almost whatever, right? Edward James almost, The last, when he finally speaks uh, English and he's like, it's too bad she's going to, what do you say? Like, she's going to die anyway or whatever. Yeah. We're all going to die anyways or something like that. That's supposed to be the part where you're like, oh shit. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, and so, yeah, when you see the unicorn at the door, you realize like he just, that other cop was like, it's it's not even worth killing this woman. She's going to die in a year anyways. So why not let them have a moment, right? And, And then you have to cut into a, fucking hovercraft and them like narrating about how they're gonna love each other for the rest of eternity i'll have fun with that 
Um, do you <laughs> feel the same way as I do too? Where I, I honestly do feel is I think that Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, and Sean Young are all acting in different movies. <laughs> like they all mm. feel like they're not in the same movie, yet the it all kind of works still. I don't know. It's this weird off-putting thing where like Harrison Ford's like super closed up and in that film noir, and Rutger Hauer's like going super yeah. big, and then Sean Young is kind of there Flat. in the background of flavor between them yeah i i'm too much of a fanboy for this movie to say that they were in separate movies i would like to believe that there's intent there because you have to wrestle with whether you like their personalities or not right mm -hmm. this is the first watching where i was really put off by the uh <laughs> by the sexual approach of harrison sure. ford and i think when i was younger i probably had some kind of justification like oh she's a robot anyways but now i watch it i'm like jesus fucking christ like that is well like when he's yeah. gaslighting her you know he's just like you will tell me you love me right you tell me you want me that stuff's like wow i mean i think that's it's again not to give him too much of a free reign on that because i think this is part of why i don't like deckard the person even though <laughs> i sympathize with a lot of the things that he's frustrated with which is i think you just hit it on the head i think that's exactly why he's doing that she's a robot i can get away with this she's not a real person but i think he's supposed to understand that oh she actually is a real person ultimately does that make it right no it doesn't absolve him of him like thinking well i can just rape this entity because i can because she's programmed mm -hmm. to I mean, that's why I think the narration is so dumb. The point I would like to believe, <laughs> you know, again, fanboying mm -hmm. hard here. Ridley Scott and the writers want everything to be completely ambiguous. Yeah. And they want you to both like and hate everybody in this film. Mm -hmm. That nobody is supposed to escape moral judgment. Even Sean Young's character, she plays both sides. She's sure. all over the place, even as an automaton. I think that's what makes this movie transcendent. When my son is old enough to sit through a movie and not fall asleep, something like this uh, or get upset because it's brutally violent in yeah. some parts that he will still appreciate uh, like the look of this the feel and one day the thought process underneath it because these are universal problems sure. like by the way the machine is very angry that you use the word automaton that is a slur in, in their language <laughs> i'm going to bust some heads pretty quickly let's do some backstory here then so this movie opened up on june 25th of 1982 currently it is rated 4.1 on letterboxd has an 8.1 on IMDb, which makes it the 177th film in their top 250. It has an 84 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it has 89% from 127 critics and 91% from 250,000 plus users. This is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes or YouTube, and you can stream it on Stars. But I'm pretty sure that is the final cut version. It is not the theatrical cut, but that's okay. Go watch that on Stars. It's better. Its budget was $30 million. Its box office in its initial run was 41.6, which is $127 million if adjusted for inflation. So like it wasn't a bomb, but it did not make money. Like this <laughs> barely made its budget and probably didn't make its marketing budget back. So it's like women looked at as a bit of a disappointment a failure mm -hmm. its plot description is a blade runner must pursue and terminate four replicants who stole a ship in space and have returned to earth to find their creator dave it's time to play everyone's favorite game guess, guess, guess that, 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 that tag, tag. of course the time where i don a handsome blazer and i get to use the long microphone that bob barker used to use you know you went to the movie theater dave and you're probably gonna go this weekend to go and see the latest in the mcu black panther wakanda forever that thing's getting some hype 
Getting some like, well, I mean, Ryan Coogler did direct the first Creed film, so he knows how to direct mm. direct movies. First Creed film is very good. Um, I watched that recently. But there's a little tagline that hopes you entice you to go and see the movie. So one of these is the tagline that showed up on the movie poster to Blade Runner back in 1982, and two of them are completely made up by me. Is it nothing is what it seems? Is it all these moments will be gone? Or is it men has made his match? Now it's his problem. What was the first one? The first one sounded not right. Nothing uh, is what it seems. The second one was all these moments will be gone. All these moments. I don't like any of them. Let's go with let's go with one because it's dumb. It is incorrect. It is actually the third one. Man has yeah. made his match. Now it's his problem. So long, eh? It's too so long, long, and it does make sense after you see the movie because the his is yeah. like Harrison Ford. But you would have made probably like ten million more dollars if that wasn't the tagline. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> How about this one? This is your bonus one that I knew I couldn't yeah. use because you would know for sure it wasn't. But here's my pitch of what they should have used, which is. <laughs> It's not that he replicant, it's that he replo won't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, this stars Harrison Ford as Deckard, Rutger Hauer as Batty, and Sean Young as Rachel. Anything we want to say about these actors that we haven't already? Well, the only little thing that I thought was kind of funny with Harrison was uh, he turned down Syriana and Traffic. Hmm. So he could have got Oscars. Yeah, he could have. Yeah. Uh, it was in his downtime. So I think he just wasn't reading good strips. Yeah, I can see why Syriana. He would have actually been really good in traffic. I think he would have yeah. nailed that. Sean Young, from what I know, got a little bit blackballed for a while. Uh, labeled as being She's crazy. Yeah. But wasn't she one of the early people that claimed like sexual harassment and no one did anything? That's the thing. It's like, it's so hard now. It's so murky between. And we saw this with fucking Amber Heard. You know, how do we, it's like the replicant question. How do we determine truth? So she's growing up in era rampant with sexual abuse mm -hmm. and right. Uh, the tail end of women actresses that are not, you know, that they're there for touchy feely and not necessarily for talent, not to diminish great actresses of that era. But I mean, we saw with Elaine May, she's never allowed to direct a film, even, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know why it's, it's weird. The thing about Sean Young is that, and this could be PTSD, but. The stuff that she gets into after is fucking weird, man. Like stalking. Yes. I saw something about a stock car crash derby, you know, like reality TV shows. I kind of know tough. her from because she really wanted to be Catwoman. Right. And she did the dress up. and Dress yeah, up. Yeah. And that's what the stalking was, that she would go to Timber. But again, I would say any of those like um, method male actors did that and they would have been offered the role. I guarantee it. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer was probably the better choice, but still. Michelle Pfeiffer is Catwoman, yeah. but that's a whole other, uh, maybe that's recency bias. I mean, uh, nostalgia bias, but she's amazing. Rucker Hauer is interesting. I didn't know he was Dutch. I thought he was German. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's awesome. I wish he had a bigger career here. I mean, he was big he's enough. Big. Like, like, people he, know who he yeah, is, yeah. but I just, I just love him. He's a fascinating guy, great actor, and he's huge in this. <laughs> He's scary as fuck. When he <laughs> yes. takes off his shirt, you're like, he's going to rip Harrison Ford's arms off. He is actually legitimately tall too, is he not? Like, isn't he over yeah, six so, feet? Yeah, uh, so he got famous working with, uh, is it Paul Van Hoeven, Hoeven, whatever? Paul Verhoeven, yeah. There's two Verhoevens, which gets uh, extra weird, so. The, the one that, well. The one who did Showgirls eventually and like uh, Robocop? Yeah, so apparently he was supposed to be Robocop. Oh, but interesting. But Paul Verhoeven couldn't get him to fit in the suit. That's he's hilarious. too big. That's so funny. It looked wrong. Yeah. 
Oh, we didn't say, but Harrison Ford is also going to be entering the MCU here very shortly, which kind of breaks my heart a little bit, but that's beside yeah. the point. <laughs> Taking over William Hurt's role, yes. I read that too. But you know what? That's kind of this old actor thing now where nobody gives a shit. I think Rob De Niro is making a cop. I saw a tr- like a semblance of a trailer movie. True enough, but it's like, I know I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to sit He's through. He's going to be in the MCU eventually too, or be like Aquaman's dad or yeah. he'll be in something. I'm just, it's going to- The new Flash. <laughs> I know it's it's my own fault for going into these spaces, but I know I'm going to have to sit through a stupid fucking take that is him as like Thunderbolt McGraw or whatever the fuck his name is. Best role Harrison Ford's ever done. This is the best movie he's ever di- he's ever done. I'm like, he really embodied I'm gonna, it. I'm going to like yeah. break my computer screen. Are there, like I'm, I'm sure this is true, but are there nerds that think that Kate Blanchett's best film is playing hell in Thor? Dave, there's people out there that will claim that Martin Scorsese has never made a movie that's any good. That every Marvel film is better than a Martin Scorsese <laughs> movie. And it makes me want to fucking drink bleach. <sighs> Anyways. Okay. Oh, man. Movies didn't start until the MCU started, Dave, okay? <laughs> Jeez. Okay, cinematography. Henry Cavill's back, man. My life's complete. We have the real Superman. Except you'll see people complaining because he wore the actual Superman costume, like the red and blue, and not the darker one that, uh, what's his name, did. And <laughs> people so, still aren't happy. People are bad that, the, that, that Snyder's, oh, that Zach Snyder's Snyder vision get- is being ruined because now he's wearing a bright <laughs> costume. Cinematography was by a guy named Jordan Cronenweth, whose top four in IMDb are this movie... State of Grace from 1990, Altered States from 1980, and Peggy Sue Got Married from 1986. Isn't that weird? I actually yeah. looked that up uh, because I was like, oh, this guy must be one. No. I like, did too. For some reason, only? I thought that he had like this. Anyways, I, I was completely mistaken about who actually was the cinematographer for this movie. It was probably actually Ridley Scott, honestly. Because <laughs> all his it. movies look like this, right? Well, the other scenes in this that are like very reminiscent of Alien. Mm-hmm. We see all the sort of the textures and the color palettes. Maybe appear. it's a little bit like the the Spielberg thing, like which is slightly different because when he, since he's partnered with Lubezki, have looked different. But early Spielberg was maybe he just comes as like put your light here, put your camera there, yes. shoot it like this, and it just that's what so. happens. We even saw that with the what's that driving movie we loved? Duel. You even see it with Duel on five hundred thousand bucks. Like how he uses what lenses he selects, how he places them, mm-hmm. the texture, the tone. I mean, that's not a cinematography type of film. Yeah, and it's all there. I think Ridley Scott's the same thing. All right, let's move on. Written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, based on the novel "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" written by Philip K. Dick, directed by Ridley Scott. So I think we should start with Philip K. Dick and his novel. So it's published in nineteen sixty eight. Philip K. Dick has had a large influence in science fiction himself. Like, there's been a mm-hmm. bunch of movies based on his property, and definitely within the wider culture, he's his influence has been felt. Hollywood has adapted his work multiple times. The big ones, probably for most people, are going to be Total Recall, Minority Report, Man in the High Castle. Those are going to be his three kind of bigger Minority ones. Minority Report is amazing. Yeah. That still holds up very well, too. Minority Report is great. I love Minority it's a fantastic Report. Fantastic movie. Yeah. I need to rewatch. Uh, original Total Recall. Speaking of Paul Van Van Hover Van der Hoven. Yeah, Paul Verhoeven. Hoverhoven. Hoverhoven. I'm sure I'll still love it because uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger pulls a giant ball out of his fucking nose. Mm-hmm. Genius. <laughs> Plus, you have the three boobs. So, <laughs> oh, three boobs. Everybody knows about the three boobs. What did you think of uh, Colin Farrell's remake? So, I think I have this really alternate opinion. Uh, I've only bad. watched it once, but I remember being like, it's fine. It's not Total Recall, yeah, but it's fine. It's not that bad. <laughs> I think that was the era where Colin Farrell was still trying too hard mm-hmm. to do an American accent. So, he appears so deadpan. Apparently, his new film, 
the Banshees of Inner Sheeran. It's supposed to be amazing. Really amazing because it's again he gets to be Irish in it. So Philip K. Dick was a twin, and they were born oh, prematurely. But his sister died six weeks later, so he survived. Yeah. His his sister died. This would actually impact him because apparently a vast majority of his fiction involves a phantom twin. Also, as he later progressed through life, had an increasing drug addiction started having hallucinations and writing about theology and metaphysics a lot inside of his fiction. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to be in his work at all. (laughs) It uh, would lead him to have a brief stay in Vancouver, by the way. Then he survived a few more years, which did not end up very happily. Um, So he drifted more into madness. So I should just say, you know, in and out of different relationships, married five times, it's like losing his mind, literally. Uh, I forget if this is before or after he was like stalking someone. Anyways, he's asked to come and do this talk in Vancouver. People can even at the convention are like, oh, this guy is a little bit loopy. And so one of the people that are at, is at the convention is like, hey, why don't you come to my house? And while you get better, you're going to stay at my house. That guy kicks Philip K. Dick out after two weeks. He's like, dude, I can't deal with this anymore. Too you're crazy. too crazy. Yeah. This would all lead to him. Like he was seeing a therapist. He was complaining about his eye not focusing properly. And so the therapist is like, uh, go to the hospital because what you're describing is there's something going on. And Philip K. Dick is like, nuts to that. I'm not going to do that. And then he has a stroke. I'm in complete shock. He gets rushed to the hospital, stays there for a few weeks, has a second stroke, goes brain dead, and then they pull the plug and he passes away four months before this movie gets released. That's when he dies in 1982. I love the irony of like tech entrepreneurs, science fiction writers who distrust medicine (laughs) and science, right? It's, it's it's weird how often that happens. Um, Elon Musk just bought Twitter, and mm-hmm. you know he's not vaccinated. <laughs> well, uh, let's move. I'm on. sure it's going to be a great on. time on the internet for the next few weeks and months <laughs> and years until I die in 2024. I logged off years ago, so well, way getting, ahead of my time. Well, getting back to do androids dream of electric sheep in the book? There is still a character named Deckard. He's in a world ravaged by nuclear war that has rendered most species on Earth extinct or nearly extinct. So owning real animals is a status symbol of the rich, and the poor are the ones who own android animals. Deckard himself uh, owns an electric black-faced sheep. And there's a whole subplot about how inclu- uh, that includes owning animals has led to this new religion. Deckard is a bounty hunter, is asked by the police to go after six recently escaped androids. They're coming back from Mars, back to Earth. He needs to retire them, which means to go and kill them. And there's a test that determines whether someone is human or not. But Deckard observes that there's been false positives so that he isn't even sure if the police are killing civilians this whole time, which might be happening. Basically... From what I could glean from the very short description I read of this, basically the entire novel is different than the movie, but Deckard tests himself, concludes that he isn't an android, he is married in this book, and so him and his wife get a real toad, which is then killed in retribution. And at the climax, when Deckard retires the three remaining androids, he's given a lot of money, and he goes off to by himself to this remote location to think about what's happened when he's hit by some falling rocks, discovers what he thinks is another real toad that they all think has gone extinct in the wild. He brings that home. The wife tests it. It's discovered that it's actually an android, but they decide to take care of it anyways. And at that point, I was like, I don't, what? Why is there so many toads in this book? Yeah, that, that, wherever you read that, it's only skimming the animal part, which is weird. Because it is a... And there's another character in it too that they follow, I think. Yeah, right? and the replicants. So he, there's a whole thing. I, I read this too. Like the books actually follows him hunting these replicants, but 
uh, he does have the strong ethical problem of whether the Voight-Comp test or whatever it's called. Mm. I don't think it's called Voight-Comp. I think it's called something else. Uh, is actually misreading humans and they're just killing humans right. randomly. But there's this whole thing about these plants. Like there's a woman yeah, there's a whole who's actually an android who yeah. seduces him. And then there's a whole police station and they're all androids. So like he's constantly caught between having to fight between fantasy and reality. Well, the one section too that I read... This was in a Wikipedia article, if you want to call me out. Part of the style that Philip K. Dick is writing in is that he's intentionally making all of the androids seem very human-like and all of the yeah. humans feel robotic. And that's part that's of the right. point, right? Is that the humans have lost their humanity and the and the androids are gaining their humanity. I feel like that's in this movie. Yes. I don't think that, move, that book was not as popular until after he died. Uh, I think that is true. I think that the movie certainly popularized this book a little bit more. This is also written in a, in a detective noir style too. So like the book and the movie are like they're joining those or, or similar in that regard. Even in 1968, when this book is published, there's talks about adapting it into a movie. Martin Scorsese was one of the early mm. people who wanted to adapt this into a That's film, right. which I think is interesting. Too bad he hasn't made a single good movie. That was only for like a brief moment and he went to pursue other things. The one other writer wrote a treatment that Philip K. Dick hated so much that he invited that writer to come and visit him. And when the writer got off the plane, Dick basically says, uh, should I beat you up here or should I beat you back up at my apartment? <laughs> like he hated the treatment so much. I love that he he invited him mm -hmm. home first. It's such you a... Know, I didn't even cancel the meeting. He's like, oh, you're going to come here. Yeah. It's such a day beyond move. It's like, no, I'm going to need to travel here <laughs> first. <laughs> Screenwriter Hampton Fancher then options it in 1977. It's bought by producer Michael Dealey, who then shows it to Ridley Scott. Scott was currently working on, this has come up a few different times, on a Dune adaptation, but uh, he that's been mired in production hell, so he leaves that and comes over to do Blade Runner. Can which, you imagine if Ridley Scott had done Dune, Dune instead? In this era, yeah. it would have been fucking amazing. We probably wouldn't have started Kyle MacLachlan, unfortunately. but um, <laughs> Might have. I, I don't know. know. It's hard to tell. Now, the initial script by Frampton had much more of that religious environmental elements that are in the source material, but really Scott did not want any of that. So he asked for some rewrites, gets David Peoples, and they steal the name Blade Runner from a completely different book that has nothing to do with Philip K. Dick's story, has nothing to do with this movie. Uh, but they wanted to use that name, Blade Runner, because they don't say Blade Runner cool in the name. book, right? That's not even, a, they don't use that as a term. No. No. But they had to it's buy the rights name. to that novel so they could use it to name it. David Peoples, just by the way, would go on to write Unforgiven and Twelve Monkeys. Wow. Now, even though he never lived to actually watch the whole film, Philip K. Dick was apparently positive on the new script and the 20 minutes of footage that he had been shown. Um, the actual production of the movie is pretty... Defraught. Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott fought a lot throughout this. There was a lot of night shoots, a lot of rain scenes, and Ford hated doing the voiceovers. He thought they were stupid. <laughs> That's his quote. They're stupid. Ford wasn't the first choice, though, because he was looking for something that would push him as an actor after doing Star Wars and Indiana Jones. He, uh, he really pushed to be considered in this role. Scott took inspiration for the look of the film from a bunch of different places, but there's two main inspirations that he drew from primarily which is the painting Nighthawks from Edward Hopper. Do you know the painting Nighthawks? No. You probably do. It's the like the diner counter at night with the three people oh, yeah, sitting yeah. at the corner of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which has been parodied yeah. in... In what show in particular? What's that? that? you're thinking about? <laughs> yeah. Probably The Simpsons, yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. And then the French <laughs> comic book artist Mobius, who was mm, doing... He's talking about Yeah, because yeah. he did Tron. Because mm -hmm. Tron hired Mobius to come and do design work for them. Isn't this his regret? 
choosing Tron over this film? Probably. <laughs> I think so. Um, so it's released at the time in 1982. It gets a mixed response from critics. It's a crowded summer, as we've said. So its box office isn't embarrassing, but it also isn't super great. It would be nominated for two Academy Awards, Visual Effects and Art Direction. It would, lo- it would lose both. But as we kind of have been saying, it would go on to have this huge cultural impact. Home video obviously played a huge part in that. It's now considered one of the greatest science fiction films of all time. It was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry in 1993. Which is before the final cut, by the way. Correct. Which is crazy to think about. Yeah. It has been cited as the main influence in things such as the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, the manga and anime Ghost in the Shell, and the video game Deus Ex. Talking about Elon Musk, the Cybertruck is a direct inspiration from this film. You had to talk about the greatest anime ever made, Cowboy Bebop. No, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. This, definitely that's a uh, noir-style inspiration. Uh, in the 90s, Philip K. Dick's friend, K.W. Jeter, wrote three novels, which were Blade Runner sequels. The 1998 uh-huh. film, Soldier, starring Kurt Russell, uh, was, oh. and, also written, and also written by David Peoples, the co-writer of this film, was meant as a semi-sequel to this movie. Oh, At the very really? least, it takes place in the same universe. It is absolutely 100% in canon, supposed to be taking place in the Blade Runner universe. I remember that film. I remember kind of liking it, but mm. I don't. I didn't realize it was connected. There's no way that holds up. Oh, by no, there's, it's a impossible. A Kurt Russell army movie? Yeah. <laughs> there was the actual sequel, Blade Runner 2049, which came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be accompanied by a few short films released online. Shorts are really good. Um, yeah. By the way, just like the original film, it did make money, but not as much money as the studio wanted. And you have to remind me, I've only seen it once. It's revealed that he is not a replicant in that. Yeah. But, spoiler alert, Ryan Gosling is. Isn't that what the Well, it's not even a spoiler alert. It's yeah. first frame, they tell you. You know, when he goes to retire Dave Bautista. It's almost like I watched it last night. It's just like, how, what is it like to kill your own kind? So you're just like, oh, wow, they just threw that right out there. Yeah. The most disturbing film moment of all time. Machine on machine violence is disgusting. My funny story about going and watching Blade Runner 2049 is when I went and watched it opening weekend back in 2017. Sit in the theater, movie starts. And in that scene with Dave Bautista, there's the, the windows, they're kind of backlighting everything. A fly landed on the lens of the projector. And so you just saw no this little way. fly traveling, like doing the walk, doing the walk up and down and through the windows. And so the people are like thinking this is funny and stuff. They stop the movie, come in and try and shoo the fly away. And after like 50 minutes, they're saying, we can't get the fly. We're sorry. And so no occasionally way. throughout the rest of the movie, you just saw the fly come back and what? like walk around the, the lens. So it was too bad that my first viewing of it was kind of impacted by a stupid fucking oh, fly. that's awful. Come on, projectionist. You can catch a fly. In a bonus i thought it'd be too hot for a fly to land on but regardless in a bonus feature on the blu-ray of prometheus directed by ridley scott the alien universe and blade runner universe are indicated to be in the same universe which makes no sense but doesn't make sense the tyrell organization is talking to the organization in oh that's right so they're actually Yeah, yeah 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 anyways stupid in 2021 there was an anime series that began called blade runner black lotus it's very good and amazon just recently announced that the blade runner 2049 sequel series uh is in development but no casting has been announced as of yet i don't know bezos I haven't really liked Prime stuff, so... Well, that's on you, isn't it? Hey, James Hong was in a good movie this year. (laughs) We had to endure his uh, uh, racist uh, inclusion inside of Yes, Giorgio, so... He's so good in this, too. I love that scene. Mm -hmm. Nobody can freeze to death quite like James Hong. (laughs) So cold. 
This is kind of that cyberpunk style, but I do like the fact that we have all this advanced technology. They get so much like that uh, intrusive advertising, right, that we actually yes. do deal with nowadays. The holographic stuff, yeah. But we still have actual photographs. I think that's hilarious. Uh, you know, I, I want to know if this was digitally remastered. You know what I was thinking about? You know, a lot of people make fun of the enhanced scene, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're now moving in 3D space instead of a 2D photograph. Certainly in the final cut, the photographs are holographic, they move. Mm -hmm. And in the first one, they kind of have this shimmer, but I don't know if they added that in to mm, try to respond of, to the know. criticism. But I was thinking because of modern day iPhones, you know, when you do, what is it called? The real time live photo. photo, live photo. It's plausible that a single frame picture is in fact an amalgam mm -hmm. of many different angles, right? Correct. Because when he's reciting what the camera's supposed to do, I realized like he's Speaking well, of angles, it's kind of weird, I think it's right? super nerdy, but with the new, like, the LiDAR sensor and, like, the type mm -hmm. of cameras that are being included on Apple phones and Android phones, that's not too far away where you'd probably be able to that's do right. that, where you could take a photo or a video yeah. and you can then see it from different, slight different, slightly yeah, different like angles. exists in three-dimensional space somehow. I mean, it's still not going to be a pixel-perfect no. reflection to give you an identification of a woman, but it's kind of interesting. I thought uh, it um, wasn't as egregious now than it would have been even 10 years ago. I love the super prominent placement of the Atari store in yes. certain scenes. <laughs> Atari apparently makes a comeback, maybe. There is something yeah. called the, the Blade Runner curse where almost every single one of the companies that is shown prominently uh, had gone? a dip in stock like right after this oh. movie came or went bust. Interesting. One other thing that they got really right, microscopic serial numbers, which is not definitely a yes. thing that happens on electronics nowadays. This is the second head crushing scene that we've seen this year after... <laughs> Friday the this 13th. One, you know, so I, I think in the theatrical cut, they cut out a lot of the violence. Yes, yeah, they had like, to cut. It's still in there, yeah. but they cut out the, yeah, so in the final cut, and you actually see his thumbs go into, go into the Tyrell's eyes. eyeballs, mm -hmm. and you're just like, whoa, is this, and it reminded me of my education, like that line between science fiction and horror, right? It's like it's not as really big. just about what's visceral. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, this kind of reminds me of the thing. I was like, oh my God, mm -hmm. I can't believe they're going to go. You can yeah, one level higher. Um, I also said like there's the, the the flying dove shot that they show. I'm like, what are you, John Woo? <laughs> well, John, clearly John Woo watched this film. Probably. But, the, yeah. I must have a flying dove in every one of my movies I make from now on. <laughs> I, you know, honestly, if that's something that comes out of an interview now, I'd be like, of course, yeah, of course, that's where it comes from. Yeah. The other thing, uh, deciding about advertisements is, um, you can definitely tell. Like after watching this film, I was like, of course Apple would contact them to make the 1984 commercial. Yes. Like, of course they did because it looks exactly like that commercial. Well, you might remember better, but that was a whole, that was a whole kerfuffle. Like, wasn't that the most expensive TV commercial ever shot? Yeah. At the time it was the most expensive commercial. It basically kickstarted the whole idea of Super Bowl commercials. Like yeah. really? Like and there was commercials like yeah. that, but no one had put money into it like Apple did. And it was like the only thing people were talking about um, yeah. after the game. So they, they took a bet on it. I know if people who are young YouTube it now, it won't seem as cool as it would have back mm -hmm. then, but it's hard to comprehend if you're sitting there like in front of a CRT TV <laughs> that gets three channels mm -hmm. and then seeing this movie appear to tell you about a computer that might exist. Just Google like just early like, 80s shit. McDonald's commercials. Like that's basically what every commercial was. <laughs> yeah. It's like cheesy, like dumb. Ronald McDonald. Yeah. Like, hey, and then I'll it's eat like, I'm going to see a short like science fiction film for like a minute yeah. <laughs> to advertise a computer company. Can you just talk very briefly then about a God illusion or isn't there a, another speech? Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know, I, I'll oversimplify this, but coming out of World War II, we have, of course, this degradation, this struggle between politics and religion, right? Mm -hmm. Communism is trying to separate them completely. Existential Western th thought is like, well, if there was a Christian God, how do we just murder mm -hmm. each other in such a brutal way? And then you get a lot of lyrical writing about God is dead, you know, all this kind of shit. I think there's this strong overtone of, as you, I mean, you named it, right? Meeting your maker. And what would I do if I got to stand in front of God and ask him, why do I have to die? Why can't I live forever? And this is something science fiction is constantly wrestling with. Not just science, science. Science is obsessed well, with immortality. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I remember those conversations happening. Like, we're old enough to remember, like, the Dolly cloning of, of, yeah, of the yeah, sheep. Yeah. It's like, we're now God. And, like, people, like, freaking out about it. Well, that freak out, I mean, it's generally there. But it's going to be partially influenced by this film as well. Mm -hmm. And books of this nature, where they're like, well, if we clone a sheep, how long? before I come back and kill myself or what if right. I, my other self lives longer than me and they still make science fiction narratives about this. So what I think was interesting about this is it moves beyond kind of like the ethics of what really makes a human a human and also asks the question of like what would you do if you could confront your maker mm -hmm. and then the violence at the end is just that in their nihilistic sort of answer is uh if God can't help me, then I don't need God anymore, right? Right, right, right. And that's why I, I suspect the ending is so beautiful because he's actually at peace. He plays a game. He's psychotic. He's Rucker Hauer. But instead of letting, letting Deckard fall to his death, he has this moment, and they do show it, where he's considering it. Mm -hmm. And then he makes the uh, incredibly uh, zen sort of decision that it's not worth letting another person die. And he just quietly passes away in the most romantic, poetic, beautiful scene. Well, it's not, to, not to jump too far ahead, you know something has cultural relevance when there is literally a Wikipedia entry for a Tears and Rain monologue. Like it has its own <laughs> <laughs> article yeah, that you can go and read. Just to totally abbreviate it, it's like, I've known adventures, seen places you people will never see. I've been off world and back, frontiers. I've stood in the back deck of a blinker bound for the plutician camps with sweat in my eyes, watching stars fight on the shoulder of Orion. I felt wind in my hair, riding test boats off the black galaxies and seen an attack fleet burn like a match and disappear. I've seen it, felt it. All these moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain, time to die. And then he actually dies. Holding a dove when the dove is released as he is And then grip. John Woo, a little John Woo was like, wait a second. <laughs> And this world of cinema flashed in front of his eyes. I think more people should just kill doves. Who needs birds? It's just in terms of like visual storytelling mm. too. You know, Rucker Hauer is constantly fighting his decrepit hands. So we mm. see... Yes, he's a mangled, right? In points. Yeah, in points throughout the film how he's losing control of his mortality. But when he is fighting Deckard... <laughs> And he has his hand. This is how you know he's not going to kill him. I mean, he breaks his fingers. Mm -hmm. It's the same hand that he's losing control of. And as we see Decker trying to rearrange his dislocated fingers, Rucker Hauer has that famous scene where he pulls a fucking nail out of a wood and has to like jam himself that's to right. get his hand to Bam, work for yeah. the last last battle. And that's really Scott. He's got all the attention to detail. Whether we like the end product or not, whether it's well, that's, that's too I don't long think I, I, I mentioned this at the beat. I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning, like I've often said on the show how much I admire big swings. And so I always give credit, even if I ultimately don't like it. And really Scott is like the master of this. There's movies of his I do not enjoy or don't think that fully work, but at least I'm always coming away like, well, he tried. He tried something. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't he work. He went for it. Yeah. yeah. 
That's what makes him Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, alien nerds hate so many alien films, but mm-hmm. if you sit down with Prometheus, yeah, like the story is kind of, it's just too much. But God, that movie looks so fucking beautiful. It does. It looks really, really good. <laughs> We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up. So we should probably first get into Critics' Choice, part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this movie was released. So Roger Ebert, it must be said, it, original release gave this movie three stars out of four. So he's one of the positive reviewers. He would go on years later, almost two decades later, to give this a full four stars and put it into his great movies of all time books. So he got there. But at the time, in 1982, he wrote in part, The human story, as I think of it, involves practical tests to determine if an individual is a replicant or not, and impractical tests, such as love, to determine how much that matters. To A, people if they are in love with a replicant, and B, replicants, if they know they are replicants. This has always been a contrived problem, easily avoidable in practical ways, unless, as I suspect, the Tyrell Corporation has more up its sleeve than arms. But the stumble on plot logic seems absurd in a film that is more about vision. And I continue to find it fascinating how film noir, a genre born in the 1940s, has such a hammerlock on the future. I suspect film noir is so fruitful and suggestive that if you bring it on board, Half your set and costume decisions have been made for you, and you know what your tone will be. Pauline Kael did write about this movie. Uh, She was not a big fan. Let's just put it that way. Not a big fan. She wrote a fucking essay on this movie. Like, I'm talking, like, over 10,000 words. Like, she wrote a lot. I think she was writing for the magazine at that point, so it was, like, just Uh, deep articles. Like a full article. Okay. And it's fascinating, like, because there's things that she does praise about this movie, but ultimately came away not really enjoying it all that much. Ridley Scott may not notice that when Howard is on screen, the camera seems stalled and time breaks down because the whole movie gives you a feeling of not getting anywhere. Deckard's mission seems of no particular consequence. Whom is he trying to save? Those sewer rat people in the city? They're presented as so dehumanized that their life or death hardly matters. Deckard feels no more connection with them than Ridley Scott does. They're just part of the film's bluish-gray heavy metal chic. Inertia made glamorous. Led Zeppelins could float in the smoggy air, and maybe in the movie makers' heads too. Why is Deckard engaged in this urgent hunt? The replicants are due to expire anyway. All of the movie makers' thinking must have gone into the sets. Apparently, the replicants have a motive for returning to Earth. They're trying to reach Tyrell. They hope he can extend their lifespan. So if the police want to catch them, all they need to do is wait for them to show up at Tyrell's place. And why hasn't Deckard, the ace Blade Runner, figured out that if the replicants can't have their lives extended, they may want revenge for their slave existence, and that all he's doing is protecting Tyrell? You can dope out how the story might have been presented with Deckard as the patsy who does Tyrell's dirty work. As it is, you can't clear up why Tyrell isn't better guarded, and why the movie doesn't pull the plot strands together. So, she got hung up on a lot of the little plot threads that don't necessarily have tight resolutions. I think this is kind of what I was getting at when we were talking about what stage of your life you are Mm -hmm. when you watch this, you know? Like, she doesn't want to see the uh, impact of hubris. Mm. Like, Tyrell never imagines that his creations give a shit about what they're doing, right? And this idea, like, oh, we know they're going to go to Tyrell. Why would anybody expect that? (laughs) <laughs> right? As as far as they describe them, they're malfunctioning robots that want to kill people. Mm-hmm. So they have to be retired. Nobody's like, oh, they have an existential qualm and they're trying to meet their <laughs> maker. Like nobody, why would you think that a robot mm-hmm. could do that? So like if you're set and comfortable in your life, then this will all seem too nuanced and mm-hmm. too youthful. But uh, I'll eternally be like six years old and right. I'll eternally love this movie. <laughs> 
So the uh, eternal question that we ask each and every week is, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Culturally relevant for sure. 100%. Yeah. Uh, so I think what you were getting at the beginning of this episode is we're going to split this, mm-hmm. right? I think the final cut holds up absolutely. Yes. It's a five, for me, it's a five-star movie. This theatrical version does not hold up. It's just so weird. And my score, I, I think I would give it like a three. I mean, the 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 core is still in it, but just it's just not great. But the thematic point Packaging, has been kind of ripped yeah. out of it. So we need to rate this film. But before we do that, although David just said what it is, um, that, that's mm, what he and I Jumped thought. Again. But what do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel. And if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the rating we've given you can go to our letterboxd page that's letterboxd.com slash kdvstm and if you want to support us monetarily give us a great christmas present this year you can go in support us over on patreon there's a link in the show notes of this episode you can support for as low as a dollar per month something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts so you are telling me you're going to give this a three for the theatrical for, cut yeah, theatrical sure this is such a kyle move i'm giving it a 3.5 <laughs> I don't think it works fundamentally, but like there's enough good stuff in there that I think. Still but good like, movie. yeah, if I, we're talking about the actual uh, final cut of this movie, yeah, it's like top tier. It's like in my favorite yeah. movies of all time list. It just is not this one. So people are going to get mad at us. People are going to get so upset. I, I was disappointed for all the nuance this Letterbox app has mm-hmm. that they don't have it split up into at least three versions. Yeah, right? I don't understand why that's not an I'm option. Surprised. When there's different versions, because it's actually a Ridley Scott thing where there's a few different like director's cuts of his films that are out yeah, there that a lot of people why. always say Kingdom of Heaven is actually the perfect example. That's another film that most people didn't like when it came released. But apparently yeah. the director's cut is amazing. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Where the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven is available. So I'll so watch that movie again. Mm-hmm. Regardless, that means that this is going to go to 3.25, which will rate down to a three and a half or sorry, a, a three. Dave. Is this better yes. or worse than Sophie's Choice? A real Sophie's Choice, you might Ooh, say, between Sophie's our choices choice. here. Sorry, I was going to say better because of my fanboys, but I, let me just get into my theatrical cut headspace. I mean, I personally think even the theatrical cut is, is slightly better than Sophie's Choice. Yeah, it's a tough one. Okay, let's put it above. I mean, Meryl Streep's really good in that mm-hmm. movie. It's got the same problems. The packaging is just awkward mm-hmm. in Sophie's Choice. The, the stories can be so powerful. Mm-hmm. Well... That means that Blade Runner, the theatrical version, is going to enter our list at the new number 15 position, right above Sophie's Choice, right below Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, actually, I'm okay with that. Well, we should probably see what we're watching here next week, Dave. I'm going to push this button here. Oh, we have some uh, comedy coming at us, Dave. We've had some intense films. We're going to go and watch Spicoli and the gang tear it up at Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Can't wait. I was trying to think of some 80s slang and I've lost so, all the So angry all the time. This is early 80s. Do they say radical yet or is that a teenage Tubular. Oh, sorry. There's uh, someone knocking at our door, I guess. I'm just going to go clomp, clomp, clomp. I'm going to put my own sound effects here. I'm going to open up the store and oh my God. Oh, why? oh my God, Dave. Didi's here. You know, Didi has. You don't want to uh, end it there? The, oh, <laughs> you, you have more? The, the, <laughs> She's been tracking us down this whole time. She's come here to retire us. Oh yeah. Wait. Where where has she been? Are are we replicants? Yeah.
I'm wet right now.